This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 17th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Michelle Mello, a professor of both law and health policy at Stanford. Michelle is an authority on public health law and has written articles on a wide variety of topics in medicine, law, and public health, including several published in the journal. She's the recipient of numerous awards, and she's a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Michelle, there's been a lot of discussion about the legal basis for restrictions and mandates during the current epidemic. But let's start by looking back at the origin of the laws and regulations that guide us in public health, particularly as they relate to infectious diseases. Governments have used various powers to deal with epidemics over the centuries, and many of these have been passed down to us. We still use quarantine and isolation for certain diseases, such as tuberculosis. One striking example was the recent outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. A patient developed disease after traveling to the United States and transmitted it to a caregiver, and others were transferred to the U.S. for treatment. All of these individuals were isolated, but there weren't consistent guidelines applied. So more generally, what is the legal basis for placing restrictions on infected individuals? Thank you for having me. To answer your question, the legal basis depends on whether we're talking about action by the federal government or by a state government. The Constitution provides for some powers of isolation and quarantine for both of those levels of government, but they are different. For the federal government, the quarantine power derives from Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, meaning to assure the conditions under which business can flow from state to state and from inside the U.S. to outside and outside the U.S. to inside. So the federal quarantine power is really only triggered when we're talking about the travel of goods or persons across state lines or across U.S. borders. When that's in play, then the Public Health Service Act can be triggered by CDC, by delegated authority from the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And that act of Congress allows CDC to take a variety of steps to prevent the interstate spread of disease. As you mentioned, historically, the steps that CDC has been taken have been pretty narrow. It's been focusing on confining individuals known to be infected with communicable disease, or even more often, focusing on animals or articles on ships, for example, that are potentially infectious or dangerous. Recently, that's changed. We have seen the CDC and the Secretary of Health and Human Services trying to use this quarantine power to do much broader things to contain the spread of COVID-19. And so the question of whether this federal quarantine power extends that far has been the subject of enormous legal contestation. And we could perhaps talk more about that in just a minute. You also asked, though, about quarantines that might be imposed by states, as was the case for some of the quarantines for Ebola virus disease. For states, it doesn't have to involve the travel of goods or persons across states. As long as public health or safety is implicated, then states can act pursuant to something called the police power, which doesn't have anything to do with law enforcement. It refers to the constitutional authority of states to enact health laws of every description to protect the public health, safety, welfare, and morals. This power derives from the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, which says that any powers that are not expressly given to the federal government are reserved to the states. And as interpreted by the Supreme Court, it allows states to do a huge range of things in public health, subject only to the caveats that those interventions are necessary and reasonable, and that they comport with procedural due process rights and other recognized constitutional rights. That's a pretty low bar. 
But it has been the case that some quarantine and isolation orders have been struck down historically. For example, during Ebola virus disease, the quarantine of Casey Hickox, who was not infected with Ebola virus disease, but was returning as a nurse from an Ebola-affected zone and had been exposed, was deemed to be unjustifiable in light of the availability of less burdensome means of protecting the public from her should she become infected. Michelle, the fact that these have been contested in different states, has there been some consistency in the legal rulings on state powers that states can rely on in order to kind of set the rules as they're making them? Well, historically, the answer has most certainly been yes. That courts historically have been very deferential to what state health officials and governors feel they need to do to protect the public health from a communicable disease, subject, again, only to rare cases where their actions are arbitrary and unreasonable, as in the case of the nurse who was not infectious and yet was quarantined. But historically, they've been given a wide berth. As with many things during COVID and during the last presidential administration, there's been a lot of upset. And so now I think that predictability is somewhat lower. The wild card has predominantly been around instances where public health orders, not so much individual isolation and quarantine orders, but certainly broader orders that affect entire communities like stay-at-home orders, start to impinge on sacrosanct constitutional liberties that enjoy even greater protection than they have historically under a new crop of judges appointed during the last presidential administration. So in particular, when a public health order implicates religious liberty, the courts are signaling to us that they're going to start taking those claims much more seriously than they have in the past. The answer to your question about uniformity is there is absolutely not uniformity in the lower courts that are handling these cases at the moment. We're beginning to see some general boundaries put up by the U.S. Supreme Court. Those boundaries look different than they have in the past, and they have not been uniformly interpreted by the lower courts. So there's a great deal of instability around the question of what kind of carve-outs do you have to have for people who feel that public health orders are affecting their religious practice. A corollary of restrictions is the ability to reveal what would otherwise be confidential medical information. In diseases where contact tracing is important, such as sexually transmitted infections, public health authorities can disclose patient details in a way that's otherwise impermissible. So why is this okay in certain circumstances? What are those circumstances? Well, all public health laws try to balance the protection of the public against individual liberties and interests, recognizing that very often when we intervene with public health laws, we are burdening individuals in important ways. Sometimes we're burdening their physical liberty, as in the case of quarantine or isolation or stay-at-home orders. And sometimes we're harming them in other ways, including intruding on their privacy or other kinds of what we call dignitary harms. And those are cognizable interests and courts require that public health authorities duly balance them when they're implementing laws and also when they're passing laws. All of our health information privacy laws recognize that that balancing is sometimes going to mean that privacy can be compromised without the consent of the affected individual. So where we do that, courts are going to ask kind of the same set of questions that they ask in other cases involving exercises of the police power, which is, you know, is this intrusion on individual interests necessary? Is it reasonable? And for disclosure of information about infected individuals, the answer is very often yes, that something has to be disclosed so that others can be notified and protected. And so the questions then become, well, how much should be disclosed and how should it be disclosed? It's very often 
the case that we don't have to be very specific about the identity of somebody who exposed another person to an infectious disease. The example that you gave of sexually transmitted diseases, that's sometimes hard to avoid. But with something like COVID, where we all bounce into contact with many, many people every day who could potentially have infected us, there are ways to do contact tracing that reveal very limited information about the exposure. And Probably all of us on this call have received a message, a letter from a public health authority or a school or an employer saying that we've been exposed. And we know those are pretty limited disclosures of information. We don't know who, what, or where other than the building and the day. So this is a circumstance that our health information privacy laws have planned for, taken into account. All of those laws have carefully drawn exceptions to confidentiality rules to account for these kinds of circumstances. For example, HIPAA, our federal health information privacy law, has a public health exception that permits covered entities, meaning basically healthcare providers, to disclose PHI, personally identifiable health information, to public health authorities without a patient's authorization. And it allows covered entities who are also healthcare providers and public health departments both to use as well as disclose that information. So we have the legal framework in place. Some people would say it goes too far in allowing disclosures of information. Maybe some of us who've been on the receiving ends of those very incomplete COVID disclosures would say it doesn't go far enough. We'd like to know more. But again, the goal is to strike a reasonable balance. Michelle, I will point out that I'm signed up for the notification system in Massachusetts, which uses cell phone proximity. And I've never gotten an alert, meaning either it's not a very successful system or I don't have a very interesting social life. Um, But it is interesting that we can sort of calibrate exposure to how much information needs to be revealed. And in the case of COVID, as you're saying, relatively brief interactions that are anonymous can result in transmission, although the rate is low. I don't know, and I'm going to ask Lindsay this question, how successful these programs have been in identifying potentially infected people. I know that a similar program in schools had a limited effect, except when there are substantial outbreaks in those schools. But the sporadic cases in schools generally don't result in a lot of secondary cases. Eric, I think you're raising a challenging set of realities, which is how decentralized contact tracing or exposure may be. And whether it's the school or your place of employment or a cell phone vendor, There are different ways that exposures can be tracked and reacted to. And Michelle, I'm interested in sort of your thoughts on how we think about, you know, the school or the employer may be within a state while a cell phone vendor may be across state lines. And how does this complicate the ability to organize contact tracing and understanding who may be infectious and who they may be exposing? Well, I think in the U.S., the cell phone apps have not had wide uptake. Even in relatively accepting states like Massachusetts or California, it's the exception rather than the rule that folks have signed up for these. As you know, they're all opt-in. None of them were made mandatory or even pushed out on an opt-out basis. And for the Apple Google app, you have to affirmatively opt into a second layer of reporting, which sends your information to public health authorities. You can get the notifications without allowing contact tracing. Exposure to notification and contact tracing are not the same thing. Knowing that your phone got near another phone is very different than reporting information to a public health agency in a way that allows them to reconstruct a chain of transmission and stop it. So there's not a lot of uptake. There has not been a lot of use for 
contact tracing purposes. And we don't know all that much in terms of actual data about the effects of these apps. There are lots of modeling studies that have suggested they're helpful even at lower levels of uptake, but modestly so. I think the fact that there are opt-in makes it not super worrisome to think about the potential questions about who regulates and is this a state or a federal issue or how are communications laws implicated. Were we in a situation where they were mandatory, we'd have to worry a lot more about the deprivations that individuals encounter when people take their information, but that's just not the route that we've chosen to go in the U.S. But Michelle, if I understand the principle correctly, if the public health measure crosses a state line, then it becomes a federal issue versus a within state issue and how they have to set it up accordingly from a legal framework. That's right as a general principle. I guess the question sometimes is what does it mean to cross state lines? And there's a whole lot of legal cases that address that issue and whether states can engage in activities that incidentally affect things that happen out of state. It's a pretty murky and complicated area of law. But just because you have a company that operates in multiple states doesn't necessarily preclude it from acting within a state, for example, in partnership with a state department of health that wants to set up an exposure notification app with that corporate partner. So as you're pointing out, in the United States, much of the responsibility for setting public health policy has been delegated to state and local authorities. So there's, as you say, a constitutional reason for this. What powers do remain with the federal government? Well, the federal government really has very broad powers with one important caveat. It has to tie any particular exercise of its authority to a constitutional jurisdictional hook, something in the Constitution that gives it authority to regulate that broad area. And usually we tie it to the interstate commerce clause, saying that Congress has the power to regulate commerce across the states. There are other sources of authority that are also very important for public health, including the spending power that Congress has. It can attach conditions to federal funding to accomplish regulatory goals, and it does that very often. The same is true of the taxing power. It can attach regulatory goals to taxes. And the federal government has authority over national security and immigration as well. And that can sometimes be used to achieve public health goals, although national security is not going to be a blanket justification for anything the federal government would like to do to you know, protect public safety. So there are broad jurisdictional hooks that support federal action. But as a practical matter, if there's not money flowing either from the government in terms of spending or to the government as a tax, and it's not something that crosses state boundaries, it will be contested as to whether that is a legitimate exercise of federal authority or should be something that's done at the state level. Now, some of the rules that the federal government has propagated have flowed to individual private employers or schools. What's the legal basis for that? Well, you know, I guess our general legal framework is that private actors are free to do what they would like in their zones of personal liberty and on private property subject only to legal constraints. So we don't have to ask the question, as we do for the federal government, what empowers a business to do X, Y, or Z, but the lawyer would ask, well, what constrains their ability to act as they please? And what constrains them are, for one, civil rights laws, which prohibit discrimination against individuals on the basis of protected characteristics. During COVID, the most important protected characteristics have been religious liberty and disability. So those impose some guardrails around what private businesses can do. Occupational health regulations also constrain what employers can do. 
but they haven't come up very much because generally when employers have pushed back, it's in the direction of, you know, sort of wanting to do more to protect people on their property rather than less. And that's generally consistent with the kind of occupational health regulations that we have. But if a business just decided, look, I don't care about COVID. I don't want to give my employees any protections whatsoever. That would be a problem if they're an OSHA regulated enterprise. Finally, what might constrain private businesses in many states is that the governor or the legislature has recently passed a law stripping their ability to decide whether to require vaccination or masks for people who want to utilize their private property. About 15 states now have placed limitations on the ability of private businesses to do those things. So Michelle, just thinking about your comments about how the government controls borders and thinking back about 300 years, as I think about smallpox, which fortunately has been eradicated through vaccination, as you know. But at the time in the 1700s, it was a global scourge. And Boston, where I am, was petrified of ships coming in and triggering a smallpox outbreak. And so they would quarantine the ships at the Harbor Islands for a period of time to ensure that nobody was incubating illness. How does that fit into the state or the federal power to prevent infection. You know, and that was what was done here in Boston 300 years ago. And is that a precedent which we can better understand as we try to prevent these infectious diseases from coming in? Or is it a time gone by? Well, that has been the question that have occupied the courts for the last few months as they think about novel ways that the CDC has tried to use its authority to prevent the interstate spread of COVID in the face of a very patchwork set of responses from the states. And the precedents that you're talking about are very relevant because they've sort of set the frame for what we all and what the courts expect when the CDC says it's acting under the quarantine power. When we think quarantine, we think ships in the harbor. We think individuals on those ships being detained and tested until they're cleared for entry into the United States. That has been the historical scope of the quarantine power, along with things like inspecting ships and fumigating to you know, get bugs or vermin that could potentially spread disease. What CDC has done in the last year or two looks very different. In particular, there are two actions that have come under fire as impermissible exercises of the quarantine power. The first was the eviction moratorium, where CDC said to private landlords that they cannot, on a temporary emergency basis, evict somebody for non-payment of rent. And the second was a series of orders related to the cruise ship industry that imposed a very onerous and unprecedented set of conditions on cruise ship lines if they wanted to return to sailing during COVID. Both the landlords and the cruise ships challenged those orders as impermissible exercises of the quarantine authority under the Public Health Services Act. And in August, the Supreme Court, in a case called Alabama Association of Realtors versus the Department of Health and Human Services, affirmed a lower court's order that blocked the eviction moratorium, essentially agreeing with that argument. By a six to three vote, the court in an unsigned opinion ruled that the CDC had overstepped the quarantine authority and that the PHSA confines the CDC to measures that directly relate to preventing the interstate spread of disease by identifying, isolating, and destroying the disease itself. For example, by isolating infected individuals or inspecting boats and exterminating pests. If it doesn't look like that, the court says, 
that's not a permissible exercise of the quarantine power. The cruise ship order looks closer to that. You know, it involves ships and it involves ensuring the conditions for sanitary sailing. But there's been some contestation in the lower courts as well about whether that is a permissible order. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals refused to allow the CDC's order to remain in effect. That appeal is ongoing. The cruise ships have voluntarily complied with the ban, but it's very uncertain. So to summarize, we don't really know exactly what the scope of the quarantine authority is, but we know it's not as broad as the CDC has tried to make it during COVID. Somewhere in between exterminating rats and barring all COVID-related evictions lies the scope of the quarantine authority in modern times. So to push you a little bit, and obviously you're not the Supreme Court and not the arbiter, but if pathogen X, highly transmissible pathogen X emerges somewhere in the world, how do we prevent it from entering our communities? What's the right scope or frame to our state health departments or the CDC to try and mitigate the entry of yet another pathogen? Well, the way it's supposed to work is that there's a sort of cooperative federalism going on where each unit of government, each level of government is deploying its everyday or emergency health powers or both to try to, in the first instance, block the pathogen from entering the U.S., Very unlikely we will ever be in a situation where a pathogen is fully blocked from entering the U.S. if it's highly infectious. So as a second line of defense to confine individuals and prevent the spread of outbreaks within a local area within the U.S. And so there is a need for both federal and state action. Once somebody's in the U.S. and they're staying put in a local area, it becomes more difficult to justify use of federal powers. We need cooperative federalism. Usually this works okay. You know, we're usually dealing with a small number of individuals and governors and health officials who are cooperative. They understand the need to impose these measures to staunch outbreaks, and they're willing to do that. The system broke down this time, and it was challenged in a way that it never has been before in modern times, certainly by the scale and uncertainty involved in the pathogen. But as time went on, you know, those factors kind of fell away. We know now how to prevent spread, but many governors are unwilling to do it. And the fact is that the federal government cannot simply step in and supplant them in all of their exercises of their ordinary functions. So what can we as a scientific community do to generate the evidence needed to allow our public health authorities to responsibly exert these responsibilities and powers? Well, I think that's a great question. And if there's one thing that really went right during COVID to me, it's that the scientific community did step up in an unbelievable way to generate that kind of evidence very quickly and to share it very widely. I think, you know, it really takes a combination of two kinds of research. One is getting a handle on the pathogen itself, how it works, what measures are necessary in order to block it. And then secondly, working with public health authorities to translate that evidence into the least burdensome possible set of public health measures. Those are the measures that courts will obtain. They need to know that there's not something less burdensome that could achieve the objective. And showing that depends crucially on understanding how the virus or the pathogen is spread. If we cannot demonstrate that to courts, it's hard to make an argument that keeping churches open or not requiring vaccination can do the trick. 
So what's different about a number of these rules is that they apply not only to those who are infected, but to the general at-risk population. There have been lockdowns, masking requirements, vaccine mandates, as you've mentioned. Under what circumstances can governments and businesses issue broad public health regulations that place restrictions on the entire population? Well, let's start with government. What comes to mind immediately here, of course, are vaccination mandates, which are one of the oldest tools in the public health law toolkit. The scale of the other kinds of orders that we've seen during COVID is unprecedented and presented a lot of questions of first impression for the courts, but the courts have very often been asked to opine on the legitimacy of vaccination mandates and for you know, more than 100 years have consistently upheld them as long as they're shown to be reasonable and necessary and not unduly intruding on constitutional rights. Quarantine and stay-at-home orders present a different kind of problem. And our historical legacy here is part of the problem. Our past experiences with mass quarantine have not been great. One of the seminal cases in public health law, known as Juho, involved a cordon sanitaire, a literal barbed wire fence line that was drawn around a 10-block radius in Chinatown in San Francisco in 1900 after there was believed to be an outbreak of bubonic plague. The line was drawn in such a way that not only was it grossly discriminatory against the Chinese-American community, but it also confined the sick along with healthy individuals in this compound, um, restricted access to food and medical care, and so promoted the spread of disease. And the U.S. Supreme Court, unsurprisingly, said this is ridiculous. Not only is it discriminatory against people on the basis of ethnicity, but it's not going to work. You know, this is irrational to confine the healthy along with the sick rather than separating them. And that is a part of our historical legacy with mass quarantine and, you know, what I guess today would be called shelter at home orders. What gets even trickier is when these orders also impinge on religious liberty or other civil liberties. In that case, the ordinary standard of judicial review that courts apply, which is again to ask, is it reasonable and necessary, is going to get tweaked. And courts are going to adopt a much stricter level of scrutiny, asking whether this regulation is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. If the court views these orders as neutral, you know, with respect to religion and generally applicable, it's meant to apply rational basis review. But a very important shift is going on in the courts right now that has caused many of us observers to wonder whether that standard has gone out the window, meaning that going forward, anything that has the incidental effect of burdening religious practice might be subjected to this strict level of scrutiny. So if the question is, under what circumstances can governments issue broad health and regulations that restrict the entire population, the answer is, well, It seems to be changing because things that we thought about before as being neutral, generally applicable, and therefore usually permissible, unless they're crazy, as in the case of the Chinatown quarantine, now maybe will not be viewed as neutral and generally applicable, but rather something that targets religion, that therefore should be subjected to very close judicial review, and that may be unlikely to survive that judicial review before many courts. Now, what about private institutions like colleges? Well, if they're not state actors, they're not government actors, constitutional problems don't plague them. The Constitution only applies to government actors. But they're still hemmed in, as are state actors, by federal anti-discrimination laws, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which protects people's religious liberty, and various federal laws protecting against disability discrimination. 
those civil rights laws are pretty business friendly in the sense that if they need to do something to protect the public health and safety or the safety of their workforce, courts will generally give them a pretty wide berth. They'll ask that the employer make a reasonable accommodation for people whose disability or religious practice is being burdened, for example, by a vaccination mandate. But if the employer can show or the college can show, look, this is an undue burden on us, it impedes our ability to carry out our business or keep our workforce safe, courts will very often waive even that reasonable accommodation. So the guardrails are different for government and non-government action. There should be a pretty wide berth for both, but because of this new concern about religious liberty, there is a question about how these very broad orders that affect religious practice, as you can argue any stay-at-home order does, as you can argue any vaccination mandate does, are going to be allowed going forward. So, Michelle, you keep pointing out that the federal test, so to speak, is reasonable and least burdensome as a way to determine if a policy makes sense. One of the challenges over the last year and a half has been the unevenness in some of the science or some of the reports of science. So how do the courts look at the quality of the science to determine what's reasonable and least burdensome? Well, I think as in every other area of law, there are observable differences in courts, in judges, interest in and ability to grapple with scientific evidence. There are some who take that responsibility very seriously, who seek help, who have expertise themselves and who are able to put aside ideological lenses, be they left-leaning or right-leaning, and really look hard at what the evidence supports. And there are others who seem patently less interested in that, who write in a way that signals to us that principles are driving their decisions, not evidence. And those principles are sometimes very important bedrock principles in the history of public health law that have to do with the balance of liberty and public protection. And sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes they do reflect a greater degree of ideological bias. So this is the legal system that we are stuck with. You know, things start out in lower courts where judges are very unequally situated in terms of their expertise and inclinations concerning scientific evidence. And the hope is that through the clash of adversarial advocacy and appeal rights, things percolate up to a higher level where they get sorted out. That doesn't always happen. I think there are many of us who've been critical even of the way the Supreme Court has dealt with certain kinds of scientific evidence in cases that they've heard involving, for example, stay-at-home orders, where they have been very willing to set aside reasoned judgments by public health officials about what measures are necessary and to substitute their own judgments, which do not seem to be grounded in scientific evidence, but rather in principles of legal rights that are deeply important to them. Michelle, Let's pretend that instead of Professor Mello, you're Empress Mello, and you have the opportunity within the bounds of a constitution that you love to create public health laws that make more sense for epidemics, for the next epidemic we have. What is there that you'd change? Well, I don't think that a state-based structure is particularly well designed to combat modern epidemics. You know, that structure worked okay in the late 18th century when people didn't travel very far or very fast. But because pathogens escape so quickly and travel so far and wide these days, it's very hard to achieve the kind of concerted, coordinated action among all 50 states that's necessary to protect us from a small outbreak becoming a pandemic when we're dealing with a highly infectious or uncertain agent. 
So I would wish for a stronger role for the federal government, allowing them to take actions that are even confined to within a particular state under conditions where a pathogen threatens harm outside the state's borders. Now, during the Trump administration, we got a little taste of what the world might have been like if we had had only a strong executive. What would have happened if the states hadn't had the ability during that stage of the pandemic to do things on their own, to adopt their own stay-at-home orders, to adopt business closures and school closure orders, and we had been solely relying on the federal government? I believe we would have been in a far worse position than we were in. So I don't want to live in a world, I don't want to be empress of a world where the federal government is the sole arbiter of what gets done. But where a state has abdicated its responsibility to act and allowed or potentially threatens to allow a pathogen to escape beyond its borders, I believe the federal government ought to have the ability to act. So that's very interesting. I guess I might add something to that, which is the question of expertise, not really a legal question, but when you decentralize authority, it's given to a lot of state public health departments whose expertise necessarily varies over a wide spectrum of diseases. And they further delegate a lot of that to local public health authorities. So the responsibility for treating tuberculosis patients, for example, in Massachusetts falls to the town. And the public health professionals in that town may never have seen a case of tuberculosis, as was the case, for example, of a case of TB in North Dakota. So I think that a stronger central supporting system would help not just in rationalizing across jurisdictions, but also having some of the expertise that has to be developed centrally. It's the only way they can do it, flow to these communities. Well, that seems right. But on the other hand, that expertise is already available to states. That is the role the CDC currently plays, is to be a repository for that expertise, for epidemic intelligence, and a resource to state and local health officials who need technical assistance. But their role is, as you know, largely advisory, it's guiding a lesson until one of these federal sources of power gets triggered. So it's not obvious to me that completely supplanting their role as opposed to ensuring that they're connected with expertise where they need it from a federal authority is a better system. Historically, I think state and local health officials have been very eager to do the right thing to contain disease. You know, they work very hard at getting it right. And even if they don't have a vast amount of experience, they are networked in together, they support each other, and they ask for help when they need it. Again, what's new here in certain jurisdictions is a turning away from that responsibility, politically motivated, ideologically driven, unwillingness to engage in the way that they historically have in combating this pandemic. And the question that I have going forward more than any other question is, what will things look like the next time we have a trans-state challenge? Is this resistance to imposing difficult orders for COVID going to spill over into other diseases, other threats? Or is this a one-off? Is it sui generis? And we can go to sleep at night feeling confident that everybody in every state is going to be protected against the next threat equally, even though we didn't get it right this time. And I just don't know how that will ultimately shake out when things settle down. Many thanks, Michelle, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.